Okay, Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Now, uh, this has been classed historically as a penitential psalm, a psalm expressing uh, repentance. It's one of seven psalms so described. Psalm 6 is the only other one we've studied that fell into that category. Psalm 51 may be the most well-known of those. But I ask you to think about, is that the main idea? How would you classify it? Uh, And uh, also, this psalm was viewed as Augustine, who lived from about 354 to 430, his favorite psalm, and uh, it said that when he suffered, he it was by his sick bed, and that he read it often. Let's read it, and let's see what the text says. A psalm of David, a mascal. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My my vitality was drained away as in the fever heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sins. Therefore let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time that you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Salah. I may have missed the Salah. Verse 5, I'm sorry. Verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include the bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise they will come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. I know the classification of these psalms is kind of a little difficult anyway. How would you classify that? Somebody says, what kind of psalm is that? Your answer would be... Maskell. <laughs> yes. Very good. Very good. And you would define Maskell. Maskell how, Brad? I don't know that I could. <laughs> well, uh, this is the first psalm that used that title. It's the first one, and uh, but it's used in 12 more psalms. If you look at 42 and 44, 42, 44, and 45, it'll be used in the heading there. A mascal of the sons of Korah uh, is a title in, in Psalms 42, 44, and 45. So uh, that word, by the way, that word is used once in the text here too. It's used in verse 8. It's translated instruct. So it's probably a title that has something to do with instruction. 
Is it translated instruct in verse 8? That same word in the text. I, I, I think it's hard to classify. David's got a thought, though. Yeah, uh, Deborah was showing me in her New King James the title of Psalm of David, David a contemplation. A contemplation instead so of a masculine. That's definition of masculine. Yes, that's that's their thought anyway. Yes, and, and you'll see you'll see questions in commentaries uh, about that. But uh, but yes, that's that's good. Uh, and some of your headings may translate that word. When you see a word like mascal, it's probably untranslated and just trans. And, and that's what they're doing here. They're transliterating it because they don't exactly know what to do with it. Contemplate is at least they're trying to translate it. Yeah. Now, the magic number of Psalm 32 is 3. Let me show you. And there are three words for our evil. It is translated in verses 1 and 2. And we'll try to get the right order here. Uh, Transgression. Sin and iniquity. So three different words to refer to human evil. Two, three different words to refer to wrongdoing. By the way, the text will use these three words again, uh, not in that same order when we get to verse 5. So there are three words for human evil. There are also in this psalm three words for forgiveness. You notice in verse 1, verse 1 you have the term forgiven. In verse 1 you have the term covered. And at least the New American Standard has the title, has the word does not impute does not impute. So, the fullness of evil is described with three terms. The fullness of God's forgiveness is described with three terms. Then, um, the when you get to verse 5, there are three terms of confession which are used. In the confession, he states, uh, I acknowledge, I acknowledge my sin. My sin I do not hide. And I will confess my transgressions. Then in verse 8, which we've talked about a little You have three different terms. So this is confession. This is instruction. Now you notice that the psalm shifts in verse 6. Up to verse 6, he's kind of been describing his wrestling with sin and confession of sin. But in verse 6, he begins teaching other people about his experiences. He uses his experience as a basis for teaching. But these verses use the terms instruct, 
which I may or may not have spelled right, I think I did, teach and counsel. And then, when you get to verse 11, as the text emphasizes praise, he uses the term uh, be glad, rejoice, and shout. Now, there may be some threes I've missed, but that's, those terms are used throughout. Uh, he, he, he compiles terms like this throughout the text. But let's, let's break this down. The beauty of forgiveness. This is not the most logical order, is it? Because he first pronounces the conclusion, the beauty of forgiveness. Then he comes back to what led him to see the beauty of forgiveness. The burden of his sin. But this is a powerful psalm. I hope you sense that in reading through it. That it's a powerful psalm that expresses the gospel in many ways. It expresses sin and all of its horror and the burden that it creates and the pressure that it brings to bear upon our soul. And then the beauty of turning away from that, acknowledging our guilt before God, and experiencing the fullness of His forgiveness. And He uses this as a way to teach and to instruct other people. But in verse 1, how blessed, how blessed, or some of your translations just begin blessed, as the Hebrew text does. By the way, what psalm have we talked about before? Studied before? That leaves us... Verse 31, it begins with blessed. Psalm 1 does. Yes, Psalm 1 is the only one. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute deceit and there is no, or excuse me, does not impute sin and uh, impute iniquity and in his spirit there is no deceit. Now, Blessed is the man. Blessed is the one. The three words for evil, three words for evil here are transgression. Transgression is the idea of crossing a boundary. Here is a limit. Here is a line that you're not supposed to go beyond. Transgression is going beyond that line. That's the idea. Sin is the idea more of missing the mark. We, we stated, uh, we stated before that in Judges 20 and verse 16, when you had 700 men in the tribe of Benjamin who were left-handed and they could sling a um, stone at a hair and not miss. That word miss is the word sin. Sin is to miss the mark. Transgression is to cross the boundary. Iniquity is to go the wrong way. Here is the path. Here is the trail. And you go the wrong way. Maybe none of those in the ways I've described them truly bring out the horror of our sin. Some would say transgression has an even stronger tone of just utter rebellion against God. But this shows us how evil sin is. It is transgression. It is sin. It is iniquity. 
But how blessed is the person, how blessed is the person whose transgression is forgiven. Do all your translations there have forgiven? The word for forgiven is the word lifted. Yeah, New King James says covered. It says covered there too? Oh, okay. Okay. It's covered. okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll yeah. get to covered okay. in just a second. But, but the idea of forgiven, it's a word that could be translated lifted. Lifted, carry, bear. Those are all involved in that. And it's like sin is a burden. Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever heard of the book Pilgrim's Progress. Has anybody ever heard about that? If Tony were only in a room, it would be more appreciated. But, but in, in that book, he is carrying a great burden. And it is removed from him. And, and that's what sin is. Sin is pictured as a, as a burden. You notice in verse 4, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. His hand, God's hand is pressing uh, David down. And it's like the burden is lifted. And we sing the song, Burdens are lifted at Calvary. Whose uh, transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now, I want you to see something here. This is, this is important. That word covered is used twice in this psalm. The other time it's used is in verse 5. I acknowledge my transgression to you. My iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my sin. Now here in Psalm 32, um, Psalm 32, when it says... My sins I acknowledged, my iniquity I did not cover. The word hide and cover is the same word in verse 5 translated hide as is translated cover in verse 1. Do you see the distinction? We can't hide or cover in verse 5 our own sins. God can cover them. We can't cover them. We can't hide our tracks. We can't magically remove it. But God covers our iniquity. Whose transgression is forgiven. Whose sin is covered. A man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Now, what does impute is not a word we use a lot. How is that in your different versions there in verse 2? A man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. Do you have anything different? All you have impute. Yeah, okay. But it has the it can have the idea of reckon impute has the idea of of reckon. Let me quote a passage. I don't know if that's spelled right, but his faith, Abram believed God, and his faith was reckoned or counted as righteousness. 
Yeah, it might be it might be counted in some version. Because this is an you know, you hear it said sometimes that this is a counting word. The word that's used here in the Greek, in the Greek translation, remember the Old Testament's originally written in Hebrew. The word that's written in the Greek is the word that's used in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, which tells us love does not keep a record of wrongs. It's this same term. Now, to impute, to reckon, to count, it's kind of, it's like, it's like there's no, uh, and I ran across this statement, and this could be a good song for Brad or some of the rest of you to work on, uh, but it said there's no record book in heaven. No record book in heaven uh, in the sense that God doesn't keep the records of those He's forgiven. He throws away those records. The debts have been paid and forgiveness has been issued. So it just simply expresses it in negative terms. What's not, what's not done. Here our transgression is forgiven. Our sin is covered. And here it's just not recorded. Our iniquity is not written down. It's not recorded. And blessed is the person who experiences this and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And the idea of whose spirit there's no deceit contextually, what it may mean is it may refer to in our confession of sin, um, we're absolutely sincere. We are, we are not trying to be deceitful. We're not trying to be underhanded. We're just coming clean with what we've done. Let me tell you something I used to hear growing up that preachers say. And I thought this was pretty powerful. I, I don't I know one preacher who said it, and I don't remember but it seems like this was wider than just one. But they would often say in the invitation, if you're burdened by sin, if you come forward and you obey God, you become a Christian, you're baptized for remission of sins. If you do that, you can go home and lay down and know that if you don't arise in the morning, that you'll be with God. And the thing that made that so memorable is there is a beauty to lying down and knowing that all debts are canceled, that all sins are covered, that all transgressions are forgiven, to know that we're right with God. How blessed is the person who experiences that. That that is a great blessing. Any thoughts right there? But look at the burden he came to. He did not come to that conclusion before he experienced some pain. He experiences some suffering to draw that conclusion. Not that not that God wasn't always ready to forgive. God was always ready to forgive. God is more ready to forgive than we are to confess. But he said, when I kept silent... My body wasted away through my groaning all day long. It, it has profound physical, psychological effects 
when we are dealing with sin and we know that we are guilty, it had profound impact on a person. Uh, some have written that uh, I can remember running across a statement years ago that for those that need uh, psychological and mental help, a lot of that would be cleared up. They gave an exact percentage, but I'm just not remembering the percentage. A lot of that would be cleared up if they could know they were forgiven. And I do remember our third grade teacher telling us the story of she had lived in town a long time and she was it was her last year before retiring. And she told us about a, a murder that had happened years and years before in town. People really didn't realize it was a murder. It was done so well and made to look like an accident that it looked like a person was hit by a train. Twenty years later, when almost all memory of this was lost, and nobody was investigating, a man came forward and acknowledged that I killed him and made it look like an accident. When he was asked, why did you do this? Because nobody was looking for who did this. Nobody was looking. He says, I just could not keep on living with myself without acknowledging what I'd done. Maybe not in in as dramatic a way, but we know that feeling. When I kept silent, my body wasted away, groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. I want you to notice that as he describes his circumstance in these verses, as he describes his circumstance, his pain was continual. It was continual. You notice that he uses, in verse 3, he uses the phrase, all day long. In verse 4, he uses the phrase, all day, or day and night. His pain was perpetual. It was continual. And he says, your hand was heavy upon me. God's pressure on him to get him to acknowledge his guilt was strong. Your hand was heavy upon me. Now, fascinating. Remember back last time, into your hands I commit my spirit. And my times are in your hands, we saw last week in Psalm 31 verse 5, Psalm 31 verse 15. But now, when he is not doing the right thing, God's hand was heavy upon him to try to bring him to a recognition of what he was had done. And it was as if his vitality had drained away under the heat of summer. Could be a long story behind this, but just really short uh, version. Uh, we had problems with an air conditioner some 30 years ago, and our oldest boys were young, and the temperature in the house was 97 degrees. And I had been to the building studying the boys who were both 
really young. And I came back when they were usually running and jumping, and they were totally red, kind of like Esau he was born, and <laughs> lifeless on the couch. That will sap you of all your energy when you're in that kind of heat. And that's what unconfessed sin does to us. It takes away all our energy and strength. I don't want to go over all the details. One, because I can't. It's probably been, I've read it at least two or three times. But it's been probably 20 years since I've read this Scarlet Letter. But that is a powerful novel. In the opening scene, the woman has committed adultery and she is forced to wear a scarlet A and the priest is calling upon her to confess the name of the one who committed adultery with her that he may be exposed and that he may be free of this burden of sin. As the novel goes on, it was the priest who made this appeal who committed adultery with her. And throughout the book, throughout the book, his physical and mental situation is deteriorating as he is bearing the burden of sin by himself. And if you try to carry that burden by yourself, it's going to be too heavy. It's, it's, it's a burden none of us. We will say like Cain, my punishment is greater than I can bear. It will be beyond us. But in verse 5, he comes to his senses and he says, I acknowledge my sin to you. My iniquity I did not hide. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. When he acknowledges, when he doesn't hide it, when he doesn't cover it, when he confesses it, it is like, it's like the water's building up behind the dam and the pressure's intense and the floodgates are open. And all the pressure is released. All the pressure is released. And he says, the Lord forgave the guilt of my sin. The Lord forgave. See, God is more anxious to forgive than we are to confess. And I told you that word hide was the word cover. In verse 1, the word translated cover in verse 1 is translated hide in verse 5. Let me give you another passage where that word is used. Proverbs 28 in verse 3 says, He who hides, he who conceals his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses it and forsakes it will find compassion. If you cover your sin, if you conceal your sin, if you try to hide it yourself, you're not going to survive. You're not going to do that. You're going to be able to succeed in that. But the one who confesses sin and forsakes sin will find compassion. Now, what are you going to do if 
you are wrestling with this problem. And I would suggest to this, and I don't know that you see this as much as you used to see this 15, 20 years ago, but I can remember the statement that one person I was at, I was with in college made. He said, I came forward so frequently that they named a few after me. He said that sarcastically. <laughs> but when we have someone, if we have someone like that, you don't write them off. I appreciate the fact that conscientiously they're acknowledging their guilt and they're throwing themselves on the mercy of God. And um, I think much can be said for that. Any thoughts right there? Verse 6 begins with a therefore. And so, because of his experience, because of the burden of unconfessed sin that he had borne and he had carried, and the blessedness of forgiveness that he experiences, he uses this as an instruction to other people. He said, learn from my experience. Learn from what I've been through. And, and that's a wise person who uses their experience as a source of teaching to others. Therefore, the New American Standard said, says, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble, you surround me with songs of deliverance. Okay? This, verse 6, talks about a flood of great waters. Someone is, is called in a flood and God serves as our hiding place. In this case, the flood of great waters is our own sin. And to turn to God in confession and repentance is to look to God as our hiding place. To look to God to preserve us. The word preserve that's used in verse 7 was also used back in 31 verse 23. In 31 verse 23, O love the Lord, all you His godly ones, the Lord preserves the faithful. The Lord preserves the faithful. And so here the same term. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. That, that word surround will be used again in verse 10. This is my question to you. What does verse 6 mean? Let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. When is a time when he is not found? When is that time? When you're hard hearted. Okay. Okay. When we're no longer here on earth. Okay. Okay, yes. It can it can be death that 
that that we've reached the point um, of no return in, in that standpoint. And it could be hard-hearted. I, I think it is more it is more a statement about our inability, as in David's answer, or unwillingness and Boyd's answer. It's more a statement about our inability or unwillingness to repent than it is about God limiting His forgiveness. I, I used an illustration recently, and um, some of you may remember because it was so recent, about you know, hearing a sermon. And... It was one of those things. I was young. I don't even fully know if I was accountable. But every word the preacher said was falling right and landing in people's hearts. And all the assembly was quiet as he spoke a parable of the sower. And everyone was brought face to face with God in the midst of that sermon. And I talked about the fact that I was young but feeling overwhelmingly convicted and just put that off and thinking this feeling that I need to do something drastic about my life will go away. And indeed it does. It will. It will go away. The Bible says, Encourage one another as long as it is called today, lest any be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Well, Christy, you know that verse, don't you? Hebrews 3, verse 13. You were... But encourage each other lest we be hardened in sin. And I think that's what he's saying. The statement, pray to God in a time when He may be found, it's more a warning to man, don't you put this off, instead of a statement about the limits and parameters of God's forgiveness. But God has everything we need in this crisis, in this crisis that is described. Why would we not turn to Him and repent? And confess our wrongs. And he uses this as general instruction to other people. In verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go and counsel you with my eye upon you. It is difficult to decide... Some some commentaries will argue, oh, God is the speaker here. And particularly the phrase, my eye upon you. Some say, oh, no, the psalmist is the speaker. But, but maybe it's a little, we're a little unclear as to whether God is speaking directly or the psalmist is speaking. Because what's most important is the instruction, not... Who is speaking it? Ultimately, we believe it's all from God. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. Learn from this experience. I will instruct you and teach you. And he said, don't be 
Don't be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to keep to hold them in check. Otherwise, they may come near. They, they will not come near to you. Now, horses are often used in the Bible as examples of strength, for example. Um, and we'll see that in the next, next psalm. Let's go over to Psalm 33 in verse um, 16 and 17. The warrior is not saved by a mighty army. Uh, a king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory. Well, why would anybody put hope in a horse for victory? Because the horse is so powerful. He's so strong. Often the horse is used as a pow- an example of strength. But here, as an example of foolishness, listen to this verse. Proverbs 26, verse 3. Proverbs 26, verse 3. A whip is for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. So, if you have horses, if you have donkeys, you're going to have to beat them and whip them in the right way. And a fool is the same way. This is what he's using to teach. And I would particularly address this to those of you who are younger on the back row. It it, it applies to all of us. But you in a special way, maybe. Don't be one who has to learn every lesson in life the hard way. Okay? If you determine, I'm going to be my own person and I'm going to make my own mistakes, and I'm going to... Well, you will. And you will suffer for it. Keep your eyes and ears open to what wise people are telling you and teaching you. And look around you at life for how things work out. Learn from other people's mistakes so you don't have to be beaten to stay in the right path. I can remember another illustration hearing a preacher use. He said, you need to teach your children respect for authority in the home. That if you don't teach it in the home, you may have to have a, a teacher or a principal teach them that at school. Or an employer teaching them that. And it may be with losing several jobs. And if they still don't learn it, it may be they learn it from a policeman who has to handcuff them and take them away. And if we don't teach it to them in the home, we don't need to blame everybody else for not doing too well or having to get too rough in situations where we failed. Don't be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include the bit and bridle, otherwise they will not come near you. In verses 10 and 11, he makes a contrast between those who are wicked and those who are righteous. In verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But he who trusts in the Lord 
loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright. So he mentions the wicked in verse 10. He mentions the righteous in verse 11. The wicked is filled with sorrows in verse 10. But loving kindness surrounds the righteous. In verse 7, we were surrounded with songs of deliverance. In verse 10, we are surrounded with the Lord's loving kindness. Be glad. Rejoice. Shout for joy. And as he says that, be glad. First, he describes the object of our gladness. Be glad in the Lord. Then, he has two other verbs Rejoice, but then he tells us who are the ones who rejoice. You righteous ones and shout for joy, you who are upright in heart. Um, What are some things I've missed there in Psalm 32 that you want to call attention to, Boyd? Is there a connection between what you're saying... And what we're what we're looking at here in Hebrews six six, someone who falls away is impossible to go into repentance. Is this the the hard hearted person or the It could be. It could be. Um the, the, the last time I really studied Hebrews six in detail, this this was the setting which this is the, the circumstance in which I saw is that some of these Christians may have been tempted to turn away from Christianity to Judaism because Judaism had more freedoms associated with it. It had already achieved the status of a free religion. Christianity hadn't totally... The letter may have been written to brethren like that. And Hebrews 6 tells them if you turn your back on the sacrifice of Christ to go back to that system of the Old Testament, there is no forgiveness. There is no blessing. I think it ties together from the standpoint of it's one of those passages we put in uh, together when you describe a bunch of passages that talks about sin can't be forgiven or committing an eternal sin or or something of that. That's one of the passages in that group. I think that setting is a little different. The last I studied it. The last I studied it. Um, but what what else? What what other thoughts do you have? Okay, Tommy, Tommy go ahead. Uh, yes. you, you might have brought it up. I don't know, but um, is there to be a kind of contrast between verses six and nine? That the one without understanding does not come near uh, God, but those who do pray to God, the great waters do not come near Him. Okay, I I have not checked out that word. I know the word for the great in verse 6, for the waters, is the same word translated many in verse 10 for the sorrows, but you're talking particularly about the... Um, the near coming near whether that is the same word okay okay would help if I was in Psalm 32 it was in 33 
No, it is not. It's not the same word, but it doesn't mean, Micah, that they're not related by concept. And they may... Uh, that There is obviously a point about drawing near to God and um, this... Um, not not coming near versus coming near. There's obviously some kind of contrast being made. Sort of like what James says: draw near to God, and, and he will draw near to you. He'll draw near to you, James or the or Satan will flee from you. Yes, yes, yeah. It could be. It could be. And I, I apologize for not picking up on that earlier, and therefore not getting a better comment on that. Uh, any other things? Okay. And you all help me out here. I'm serious about that. Uh, about because I I have a couple of thoughts, but not as many. Jesus, how does he fulfill Psalm 32? How we look at Jesus in Psalm 32? I mean, obviously, you know, verses one and two of. Um, Jesus being the one forgiving sins, you know, paying for those iniquities. I mean, I see the connection there of, you know, um, allowing him to take away those sins, to cover the sins, to impute iniquity of yeah. those. I mean, that seems like an obvious topic. Yeah, that, that, and that's, to me, the main thing I came up with. It, it's, you know, here you see the big problem in mankind's life is sin. I think Psalm 32 makes that clearer than most passages in Scripture. In Psalm 32, I mean, we just come face to face with the fact this is the problem that we are dealing with. And Jesus is the reason we have the possibility of forgiveness. Now, did those people in Psalm 32 necessarily understand that? They they, they grasp all of that. I do think this is a good passage too, both verses 1 and 2 and verse 5, to go to to show those people did think of themselves as being forgiven. They didn't think of themselves as having their sins roll forward, which, and I'm not meaning to be smart-alecky here, but I've never really had anybody exactly explain what that means. <laughs> uh, and, and I can remember saying it myself and not know what it means. And uh, so they thought of themselves as forgiven. Now, did they see the whole picture? I mean, they knew a Messiah was coming. They knew, but but He is the means of forgiveness. That through Him we have forgiveness of sin. Jesus is the reason for forgiveness. He is the means uh, of forgiveness, and, and, and that is it. Just permeates this psalm to such a degree. It's hard for me even really to just put one or two verses there. That's the whole problem of the first five verses is that there's the burden of sin and Jesus is the answer to that. And, and even the teaching afterwards is built on that. But but what else? Is anything else that you can think of, David? Well, uh, the last half of verse 4, my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. 
reminds me of Psalm 22, verse 15. My strength is dried okay. up like a potsherd. And we certainly apply that to Jesus. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, that's not to say, you know, there in verse 4, it was his unconfessed sins that caused the vitality to be drained. Yes. And that doesn't apply to Jesus. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, but it's he, not. He was bearing our sins. Yes. And yes. was drained as a result. Yes, that's, that's a good point. Very good point. Very, in a good way to say it. Um, that is right. Tommy. Yes. Verse one. Um, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. You said you connected that with the word lifted. Is there a connection with John three of Jesus being lifted? Yeah, I, I, I looked as far as the um, that is not the same Greek word that's used in that translation, but Jesus is lifted up. In the Gospel of John, and it, it is striking that a term that is sometimes being lifted up in the, uh, the Hebrew in the Old Testament used for forgiveness, Jesus is lifted up, and it's in John three fourteen and fifteen, eight twenty eight, and twelve thirty two, I believe. That the three times in the Gospel of John that he uses that particular expression. And the last time, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. <laughs> but but no, I I um I, I was checking that one out, and because uh, I was thinking it and wanting to make that connection to, but Paul uses Paul quotes this. He he quotes verses one and two. In Romans 4, verses 6 through 8. In Romans 4, 6 through 8, Paul quotes this. Now, he, um, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been covered, whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not take iniquity into account. And in context, what is he doing? He is contrasting the way of salvation by works with salvation by faith. You see it in the first eight verses. Look at verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather has found according to the flesh? Or according to the flesh, Abraham our forefather according to the flesh has found. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness apart from works. Now to the one whose wage... who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, 
but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And then the rest of this that we, we have just referred to. Now, we could have gone in great detail about what we just read right there, and I'm not going to, but I want you to notice this part. That when he describes salvation by faith, Abraham was justified by faith. And in verse 3, quotes Genesis 15, 6 in order to establish that. Uh, what is this blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from work? Salvation by faith means that we are forgiven by God. Doesn't mean we can't, we don't do anything. Doesn't mean we don't make a proper response to God. But it does mean we are guilty and we don't deserve it. And God, in His mercy, forgives us and covers our sin and doesn't record our iniquity. It is salvation for sinners like you and me. Sinners who are repentant. Sinners who want to confess and forsake their transgressions. But people who are forgiven by God's grace. This is what Romans 4 is talking about. And and this is the door of salvation open to us. Now everybody wants... A second chance, or third, fourth, fifth chance, don't we? Now Jonah, when Jonah tells the men, throw him overboard, he's brave to say that. They throw him overboard, but he's perishing at the bottom of the sea, and he prays to God, and God sends a great fish to, to swallow him. And it provides deliverance for Jonah. He wanted a second chance. He wasn't too crazy about Nineveh getting a second chance. But he wanted a second chance. All of us do. And all of us have been given more chances than that. And that's the message of the gospel. That God forgives in His mercy and grace through Jesus Christ our Lord. And... How blessed it is to be able to go to sleep with your head on your pillow and to know that if you didn't arise, that you'd be right with God. Anything else that I've missed? Okay. As we close, would any of y'all younger guys want to leave us anything? Boy, do you or would okay? I wouldn't if I wasn't necessarily my target audience, but 